Wow. Thank you. Choir, Grace, thank you very much. So this sermon series that we're in is really about making connections. The fruit of God's spirit is love. And so to be people who embody that love and all of those little facets that we've been talking about, like joy and peace and goodness, we must be deeply and intimately and unwaveringly connected to God, who is love. Now, to illustrate this today, um, we are going to begin making some actual connections. Our creative team has been hard at work preparing this enormous black hole over here. Um, which, if you can see, now has almost 2,000 nails connected in it. And we want to invite you to be a part of making those connections. I know sometimes hearing is all we need to understand something. Um, but what really tends to help most of us, I think, is being able to see something. I know for me, keeping my hands busy can often help me to make um, understanding happen in my head while my hands get to do something. Now, Greg and Kristen are going to be up here the entire time with Sue. And um, we'd love for some of you to, to join them up here while I'm talking. It's okay to actually be up here while I'm talking, I promise you. Um, you don't have to stay up the entire time, but if you find yourself um, hurting from daylight savings time and you need something to keep you awake, now is your chance. So, the region of churches in Galatia, it seems, had a bit of an internal conflict, which is why we have the letter to the Galatians in the first place. A group of people called the Judaizers had begun teaching that one must first become Jewish and a follower of the law before one could become a follower of Jesus. Now, Paul obviously takes issue with this, which again is why we have the letter to the Galatians. He says it's contrary to the gospel that they have accepted. And so later, towards the peak of the letter, Paul writes these words. And this is the passage, the bigger passage that we've been studying. It says this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desire what contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. See, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Or as the choir sang this morning, Holy Spirit, rain down. You can hear in this passage how Paul sets up two sides of this debate. Um, he starts by arguing that the point of all of this is our freedom. 
Only one of these two approaches will actually let us live freely, and the other one will put us back into a slavery. On the one side of this, he produces a list of what he calls the works of the flesh, and on the other comes this list that we've been studying, the fruits, or really the fruit of the Spirit. Now, according to the Judaizers, our salvation out of brokenness and into the kingdom of God comes from our right living, by behaving in a certain way. Instead of surrendering to the broken desires of our flesh, which is sort of our basic instincts, which he lists out in that really long list, we are to work hard to deny those desires. It's about discipline and effort, which is what Paul calls works. But this is what Paul calls the false gospel, slavery, because even the chosen people of God for all those years could not live up to those standards. To Paul, the true gospel is not one of our own effort, and so we get this image of the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the fruit, and then the rest of the things he lists are sort of facets of those love. If you look at love from different angles and different perspectives, you get joy, peace, patience. And the image is one that we're all familiar with. See, fruit reflects the character of the plant that produced it. It's produced from within, and when planted, it creates another plant just like the one that it came from. And you can see what's inside by what it produces, which means that the list of these words should not be treated like a list of adjectives. They should be treated like a list of adverbs. Now, if you're not a word nerd, bear with me here. It's not, I'm a joyful person. It's, I love joyfully. Do you hear the difference? I'm not a joyful person. I love joyfully. See, when you love joyfully, you produce more love. It's not a statement of a condition. It's a statement of action. See, no law can produce this kind of fruit because the law is about what not to do. Fruit requires that we do something. To love must be connected to the one who is love in order to produce more love. Before Christ set us free from sin, we were not able to love fully, is what Paul is saying. But now, the fruit of love is possible in our lives because the Spirit can now love through us. Paul is saying that any time we try to love in our own effort, we actually put ourselves back into slavery. But when we are connected to Christ, we can now love peacefully. We can love joyfully. We can love generously. And that's actually where we land today, what Paul calls goodness. So one day Jesus is out and about, and he arrives at this spot by the side of the Jordan River. And he's, you know, he's teaching and he's praying with a bunch of kids. And it's just, it's going really well. It's a good day. People are interested. They're paying attention. Every pastor's dream, right? And then this guy pushes through the crowd, this rich young man of some authority. And he asks, teacher, what, mu- what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? What good thing... Must I do to get eternal life? Now, before I go on, I can't keep saying rich young ruler over and over again. It just doesn't sit in my mouth very well. So I'm going to have to give this guy a name. So I'm going to call him Jeff. 
Um, if Jeff is your name, I'm sorry. That I'm not implying that this is just for you. Or am I? Anyway. Never mind the brazenness of pushing through the crowd like he owns the place. Or calling Jesus teacher, which in the book of Matthew actually never, the disciples even, never call him teacher. It's that respected of a title. Let's just say that this conversation is not off to a great start. But the question itself is just wrong. Instead of telling him this, though, Jesus almost poetically redirects him. He says, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. So Jesus redirects goodness away from the what to the who. The question that Jeff should be asking is not, how can I do good things to be good? But how my attention is called to the origin of goodness itself, the one who is good. How can I connect to the one? But then Jesus continues, if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, said Jeff. What still do I lack? Now, it's not really out of the ordinary for uh, people in Jesus' time, the rabbis in particular, to give this sort of cryptic answer like this. And to his credit, Jeff has actually realized that he's missing something from his life. I don't think he's asking this question to, um, to self-justify. I think he's actually asking an honest question here. But Jeff has approached the problem like he always has. He's barged his way to the front of the line, and he's made himself part of the group without their permission. He's assumed his question is the most important one, And then he's assumed that it's within his power to simply do one more thing to acquire the object of his current fixation. You might even hear a hint of some skepticism on Jesus' part to the young man's claim of fulfilling these commandments. The order that they are listed in, for one, is really odd. Jesus leaves out the first four commandments entirely, which are the ones about God being the primary voice in our lives. Um, He then talks about some of the more common ones, numbers 6 through 9. But let's be honest, it's unlikely that Jeff has murdered anybody lately. But then Jesus goes backward. He goes back to commandment number 5, and he says, Oh, honor your father and mother. So now we're out of order. But when you think about this, the only way that a rich young man like Jeff might be wealthy in the first place is if his parents are gone and he's inherited his wealth. And then Jesus finishes by saying, love your neighbor as yourself, which actually isn't even in the Ten Commandments. It's from the book of Leviticus. The wealthy, though, then, and let's be honest, often now, were not known for taking very good care of their neighbors because while most of Israel had nothing, they were still wealthy. But again, Jesus never says this outright. This is all implied. It's in the subtext of the conversation. So instead, what Jesus says is this. If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When Jeff heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who can be saved then? So there's two pairs of words here. There's go and give, and then there's come and follow. Now, in a way, what Jeff has done is he's offered himself to Jesus to be another disciple, a follower of Jesus, albeit in a somewhat conceited sort of way. In those days, um, a lot like today, the wealthy were seen the ones who were blessed by God. And so they were the ones that were most likely to enter the kingdom of God. But then Jesus trashes that whole idea with this massive hyperbole. It is actually easier to thread a little needle for sewing with a camel than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's no wonder that Jeff left sad. He thought he had it all together. Everything about his upbringing, about his culture, even the reactions of the disciples to what he's doing, here says that he should just be a shoo-in. But Jesus has seen that the man is so attached to his material possessions and in the actions that they can then buy him that he thought he'd be able to get in. If you remember back in the beginning, he asked what he was lacking. And Jesus' answer, it turns out, that the very thing he lacked was that he had too much. And so the disciples' shock here makes um, maybe a little bit more sense. If the young, rich, popular, hashtag blessed influencer guy who has it all together can't make it in, what chance does anybody else have? But this is God's kingdom we're talking about here. And so Jesus answers their shocked question. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. All things. This is God's kingdom, and God is not satisfied with nobody is worthy the end. Just because something is hard does not mean that it is impossible. And frankly, God is the God of the impossible. The rich young ruler can't save himself, but ultimately that was the point of the law. The rules were not what save us. Only God can save us. Only God wants to save us. Only God did. Now this would be like a really great touching moment. But if you know anything about the disciples, especially in the book of Matthew, you know that Peter doesn't really have a lot of tact, and he can't leave well enough alone. And so of just letting us have this one, he goes and he puts his foot in it. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What will there then be for us? So, Peter, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning recognize that I'm skipping a couple verses here. But these verses are basically a brief reassurance for the disciples before, Peter, or before Jesus has to tell them where they now fit into this picture. So Jesus turns to Peter and he tells him this story. And here's the short version. 
Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner that though goes out in the morning and he hires some people to work in his vineyard. And they agree to work for a full day's wages. But a few hours in, he decides he needs to hire some more. So he goes back and he hires a few more. And he says to them that they'll be paid a fair wage as well. And now this happens a few more times throughout the day until the fifth time he goes out to the marketplace to hire some more people to work. It's just before the end of the day. And there are still some people there. So he asks what they've been doing all day. And they said, well, we've been here all day, but nobody would hire us. So he says, okay, will you come and work for me today? An hour later, it's the end of the workday, and the landowner asks the foreman to pay every of the workers. And this is where we're going to go directly to what the text. I want you to hear this. He says this. The workers who were hired last came and received each a full day's wage. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them received the same, a full day's wage. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for one day's wage? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? See, what you take away from this parable depends greatly upon the perspective with which you approach it. The last group of people barely worked at all. They were there in the the nice cooler part of the day. For not a whole lot of time. But why? Why didn't they have work? It's not like they went to the marketplace late and they missed the guy coming to hire them. They were there all day. So it must be something about them that made them unwanted. What a label that is, right? I'm sure many of us have been in that place. But the landowner, who if you haven't figured it out yet, that's God in the parable. He goes and he hires them anyway. And he says, no, you can come and work for my vineyard. You are still wanted. And at the end of the day, despite having worked maybe an hour, these people are shocked to discover that they are now given a full day's wage. The owner of the vineyard is shown to be someone who is extravagantly, wildly, even recklessly generous at his own expense. And he pays them far beyond what they thought they might get. So the foreman goes down the line and pays each group. And as he's doing this, the first group of people gets really excited. If he was generous to those people who barely worked at all, what's he going to give to us? But the foreman hands them only what they'd have agreed on, the single day's wage, the exact same as everybody else. And they get upset. They grumble at the landowner and the other workers. And it's the foreman who's paying them, but they grumble so much that the landowner now has to step back in and say, look, you don't get to tell me what I do with my own money. You agreed to work for this price. Now, why do you think we are going to change that agreement? Of course, unspoken in the parable is the fact that at the beginning of the day, none of the workers had a job. 
if you, can you hear how this parable depends on what perspective you approach it from? Are you a person who is coming in who was hired first? Or are you a person who is coming in who was hired last? So what does this tell us about goodness? It's kind of like Jeff and Peter are two sides of the same coin. They've both missed the point about goodness. Now Jeff, our rich young ruler, discovers that he has a problem with attachment. Or really, what he's dealing with here is fear. It's not that he loves money per se, but he loves the security that comes with it. One thing that can get in the way of our ability to love generously is our fear of not having enough. We have a perspective on the world that says our resources are limited, and not just our physical resources, but our emotional resources, our time, our energy, um, you know, whatever. Having this inheritance that pays for everything makes him feel safe. It's comfortable. For Jeff, he's afraid of giving everything up. How will he survive now? Who will take care of him? It's not his parents. He wouldn't have the inheritance unless they were gone. But Jesus is telling him, you have to trust me now if you want to be my disciple. I'll need you to do some hard, even crazy things that sometimes won't make a lot of sense. But then the other side of this coin is Peter. Like the workers in the vineyard, Peter agrees to work with Jesus early on when he wasn't really known. You'll notice that Jeff was told to give up everything. Sell everything, give it away, come and follow. But Peter? Well, Peter did leave everything, but it's still there. He can still go back to that whenever he wants to. In fact, later in the gospel, he actually does do that. Jesus hadn't asked Peter the same thing he asked of Jeff. But Peter still compared himself. And I think that's what a second way of getting in the way of loving generously is. When we compare ourselves to others. Peter basically says, at least I'm not like them. I did this thing, I did this thing that you said. I must be good enough. See, implied here is judgment. They're bad, so I must be better, which means I must be good. Think of it this way. When something bad happens to somebody, what is your first reaction? Do you assume the best in everybody else, or do you assume the worst? What about when that bad thing then happens to you? Have you ever noticed that we tend to um, assume the best about ourselves, but the worst in the other people? There's actually a name for this in psychology. It's called the fundamental attribution error. It means that when something goes wrong for us, we assume that it's an accident or that someone else is responsible. But when the same bad thing happens to somebody else, we assume it's entirely their fault from bad choices. Which actually is addressed by something that Jesus says to Jeff, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, which among other things means... Give your neighbor the benefit of the doubt. 
the same benefit of the doubt that you give yourself when something goes wrong. It means being generous with your opinion of others rather than judging them to make yourself feel better about how good you really are. See, the minute you say, boy, I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee, is the minute you become a Pharisee. Consider yourself with sober judgment, it says in Romans. We were once sinners, but now have been set free to see others as God sees them, as God treats them. And God loves us all, and he wants the best for us. So how do we do this? Well, first remember, loving well means leaning on and following the Holy Spirit. Recognize that you need help and that you can't do this alone. Stay connected to the Spirit and you will love generously. Prayer, scripture, worship, community, giving, all the stuff we've been hearing about with the small group ministry that's coming, there are lots of ways that we can do this. But stay connected to the Spirit. Second, I want to emphasize this importance of connection to the Spirit that can happen in those moments with prayer. When something happens to make you feel less generous towards somebody. That's a really great time for, okay God, I need help here. That pause is so important because it can give us perspective. To treat others generously means understanding the reasons the person behaved badly. Those reasons aren't an excuse for their bad behavior. But maybe it helps us lessen that gut response. You've had a hard life? Well, that's no reason for you to treat other people badly, but it does give me another reason to treat you generously. There's another word for this. It's called compassion. Third, stay connected to a true perspective of yourself. Remember how far you have come since you were set free. But also remember how far you still have to go. In other words, be of sober judgment. Practice humility, which, by the way, will help you still with numbers one and two. And lastly, I think goodness is like, uh, it's an awful lot like patience. You have to practice it in order to actually have it. Unless you're in a situation where you can love generously, you don't get to actually practice loving generously. Luckily, those situations come up all the time. Are you driving down I-91? Guess what? You have a lot of chances to love other people generously. Do you have kids? There are a lot of chances to love other people generously. Do you have parents? A lot of chances. Do you have a job? Same story. Are you in school? Same How you choose to stay connected to the Spirit in those moments is how you become, over time, a person who loves generously. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and Jesus is calling us to love others generously. We are not to give in to fear, but to lean into the Spirit's leading, remembering how God has taken care of us. Believe that if God has called you to love generously, then he will provide the means of generosity. And don't give in to judgment. Don't compare yourself to others or looking down on them because they're at a different place 
when you when when God is generous to somebody else, that is a chance to be grateful that God is generous. And then go and do likewise. God has set us free so that we can love generously. As the power of the Holy Spirit works through us. Let's pray. God, help us to know that we have been set free. Help us to feel and experience that in a tangible way this morning. We see that you are good in so many ways. We see in the power of the creation that you've made for us. We see that in the people around us. We see that in the heavens and in the depths. We see that you are good and that your mercy endures forever. Lord, would you teach us to be people who too are good, that we become wildlessly, recklessly generous to the people around us in our attitudes, in our postures, in our perspectives. May we know you better as people are generous to us. It is in your good, good name that we pray today. Amen.